Welcome to Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius, your source for horror, sci-fi, suspense, and all things violent. Welcome to Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius, your source for horror, sci-fi, suspense, and all things violent. Thank you so much for joining me today on Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius. Today, at the end of the episode, we will share Going Dark, a story from Somber Stroll. But first, we have a very special guest. He is the founder of the nonprofit for CTE by CTE. I discovered him just recently through a support group that I joined. He encouraged me to share a video that I made about my recent road rage incident, and that is... Uh, CT and brain injury, global support. It's been awesome since I've been in there. I love it, but I wanted to bring him on so he could talk about CT, how he got involved in it, why it's important to him. Thank you so much, Rico Petrini, for joining me today. I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the platform and you know, spread some more awareness. So it's a great opportunity. Thank you. So first, I'd like to hear about your story. You know, growing up, what sports did you play? How did CTE even get on your radar? It's not something that people want to dedicate parts of their life to, you know, it's not something mm -hmm. that a lot of, especially, you know, athletes probably aren't that interested in. So tell me a little bit about your story, whether or not you had concussions and why this is important to you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. So my history is I was one of those hyperactive kids that my mom wanted to keep out of the house. So, you know, I was pretty much a four sport athlete, you know, summer, spring, winter, fall, I was in something. Usually early on, it was soccer and baseball. So didn't really have much exposure to head contact then. And then I lived on the coast in California. So did a little, you know, surfing and boogie boarding in between to kind of keep busy. I really didn't get into any contact sports until freshman year of high school. And I tried out for the football team and, you know, had never played before really other than street ball. So got into that and did pretty well and just, you know, tried to act like a madman out there to, you know, get win my spot. And they stuck me at inside linebacker and that's where I stayed. So played four years at Sarah High School in San Mateo, the school that Tom Brady went to and Lynn Swan, Barry Bonds. So it's got some, yeah, it's got some pretty good pedigree behind it. So played there four years, started and was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to Oregon State. So went up to the Pacific Northwest, played in Corvallis, chose Oregon State. I had actually about a hundred and something schools offer me scholarships, but I was really excited about Oregon State because they told me I would play right out the gate <laughs> and they didn't lie. Um, my freshman year, I started and I played all four years there at inside linebacker. So, you know, one of the best leagues in the nation, very competitive, some big linemen. So, you know, there's a couple of times going against 315 pound linemen, you know, it was pretty regular occasion. I was only about 215 at the time. So quite a mismatch, but really had a great time. A lot of great guys there, met a lot of great friends, but you know, that is really where the concussions really kicked in. Now I had a few in high school. I had one in particular where it was so bad that my arm started floating. I didn't know till actually a few months ago that an arm stinger or floaters related to neural damage and concussion. So that actually was something I didn't even know until recently. So that was an early indicator that I had done some, you know, early damage in high school, but, um, this one particular instance, I remember getting knocked pretty hard 
went to the sideline, saw the trainer. She just straight took my helmet and they, you know, told me to sit out and I was going down the line, trying to find somebody else's helmet that would fit so I could get back out there. So, you know, we just didn't know a lot at that time. You know, you didn't, you just thought, okay, I, I bumped my head. I got my bell rung. You know, you, you didn't realize that there, I know how crazy it sounds now because we have come a long way with the science, but at that point, you know, it was, it, you know, if you didn't see blood or bone wasn't sticking out, you know, you got back out there and played. And that's the sad part about head injuries is you really don't realize how much damage you're doing, especially as a 14 year old kid, you know, you, you have no idea. So I had probably three or four concussions in high school that were pretty serious. Not that was the most serious, but in college is where I really racked them up. In practice, we did full contact every single day. Um, they're only doing 15 minutes a week now. So that tells you the change. In addition to that, you know, we were doing things like what's called the Oklahoma drill, where it's basically line two guys up, like crash up derby and run them at each other from 15 yards out, you know, and, and collide. We did ISO drill where a fullback's taking on a linebacker, you know, at full speed. I mean, these were the kinds of collisions that were kind of made the practice. Everybody got around and that's where you kind of proved yourself. But that's also where you got most of your concussions. So I, I was at a point where I was taking about 1600 milligrams of Advil a day because I was having just excruciating headaches almost all the time. I would get out of practice and I get through the first set of hitting drills and I had a corner on the field in the grass where I would go puke and I would puke just from the dizziness and the headache. And then I would get back out there and, and play some more. And everybody kind of laughed it off. You know, there goes Rico's lunch and I would get back in line and go do my thing. In games, I never got pulled out except for one game. It was against Cal. And I first half, I had like 14 tackles and was having a phenomenal game. But they, on punt team, we watched the video after and I was literally running in circles in the middle of the field, just not having any clue what I was supposed to be doing. So they took me at halftime and did a concussion check on me. And I was calling the team doctor dad and, you know, ask him about my pretty shoes. And I gave this really dramatic crying speech to the team to try to pump them up, you know, and just was completely out of it. So that got me a trip to the hospital and had observation. But at that time, they actually told you to have a parent or somebody be there and wake you up every you know, hour, which we now know is really bad, but that's what was, that's what happened. And by the next morning we had film study and I was in watching film and that evening we had shells and helmets for practice and I was back out practicing. So literally didn't even take a day off, not even 24 hours. I had a lot of concussions like that, that were pretty serious where guys would have to tell me where to line up instinctively. I knew how to play the game so you could fake it real well. I could pass concussion protocols. They could ask you the basic dumb questions and anybody can pass that. But it's, it got to a point where, like I said, I just didn't have a clue at times where, what was going on or, you know, and, and my guys were bumping me into where I needed to be or told me where I, what gap I was supposed to go hit. And they just said, oh, that's Rico, you know, and it just kind of got taken as that was part of my goofy personality. But, you know, I look back now and see that that was some very obvious symptoms that I had more going on. In fact, you know, with that Advil at 17 years old, I had a huge hole in my stomach because it had burned a hole from the amount of Advil I'd been taking. 
So one of the things that should have been a flag for me is during my last season in fall camp, we were doing doubles and we hit morning and afternoon. And I had the break at lunch and I was with my roommate and we were both laying in our beds and I actually had a seizure and was, you know, pretty bad one. And he was trying to figure out what was going on with me. And I turned to him and I just said, don't tell the coaches, you know, I don't want to sit out, you know, because you just, you want to start, you want to play, you don't want to lose your opportunity. And, you know, looking back, I can't believe how dumb that was, but just didn't know. Would would you, would you have cared? You know, I was, I was very self-destructive. I wanted to play. I wanted to be famous. I wanted to, whether it was football or fighting or boxing or whatever, I didn't care about any damage, you know, it's like, I kind of like, okay, yeah, there's a chance, but you know, so even if you knew at that point, do you think, because that was probably your identity, that was probably your life. Would you have stopped playing knowing that, yeah, maybe I am screwing up my brain? That's a great question. Knowing the information that we know now, I think I would have taken a harder look at things and I probably would have taken some more time off. I definitely would have taken some practices off to let myself heal. You know, the second impact syndrome, I I don't know how, frankly, I'm here with the amount of concussions I had back to back in practices and stuff that I played on and never really fully recovered from. So, you know, there were some serious risks. I got lucky. I wouldn't say anything I did was smart, but at the same time, it was that time. I mean, there's right now a couple of concussion suits about that time, and we're trying to look at them through the goggles of today. Mm-hmm. And what you need to do is you need to go back to, you know, 1995 and realize the only thing the NCAA cared about were steroid tests and whether you flunked out and whether you had a side job that you were making money. You know that. I mean, they, they didn't care about anything else regarding your, quote, student athlete. Yeah. You know, I mean, that was the only things I ever saw the NCAA for. We never got a handout, never saw a video. You know, if they did something like driver's ed where they had a red asphalt kind of video and said, hey, this is your brain. Yeah. This is your brain on football. You know, might have woke some people up and might have thought twice. The ideal tackling approach for me was you take your face mask and you put it right under their chin. You know, and my kids watch some of my video now and they go, wow, you would have gotten ejected from basically every in every game because the way you hit. Mm -hmm. And that's how we were taught, you know, so I'm thankful that things are changing. I just hope to see more change. I think a lot of people are afraid that the game's going to get soft or we're going to go to two hand touch or you can't have the same level of play. And I totally disagree with that. I think there's a lot of safety measures that could be put in and still have the same game, you know, and just be smarter about it. Yeah, 100%. So now when did you, did you try out for the NFL? Were you already having too many issues? And then when did you really start to notice symptoms and put it together? Like, oh man, this must be from that. Yeah. So great question. I was all pack 10. And team MVP, my senior year, so I had a really good outing. I think I was number two in the Pac-10, 125 tackles or something like that. I had been talking to Cleveland and Kansas City and actually got an open invite to the 49ers. So I went down to Santa Clara to their camp there. And, you know, they have access. That's where you learn that, you know, in college, I think you play for your school and you play for the student section and all these other, you know, things that are 
you know, these dream things, you know, the unicorn kind of fantasy. And in, you know, NFL, you learn real quick, it's a business. It's not about playing for your city. It's, you know, you're playing for the money. They got their team doctor. They're going to look you over like you're buying a used car. And, you know, they had all my medical records. So those came in, they took a look at that. And then one of my knees that was supposedly, you know, just a, a sprain that I played on my junior year, the team doctor looked at that and said, he actually called another doctor over and he goes, come here and look at this. This guy's knee swings like a door. And I figured that was probably a pretty bad sign. At that time, I had the four hospitalized concussions or, you know, doctor controlled concussions. And so they had already X'd me out because Steve Young was playing at that time still, and he had just retired for that same amount. So they're not going to take some, you know, college kid who hasn't even played for him at all yet that already has the same level of concussions as Steve Young. So I, I knew my day was kind of done at that point. And it was fun to at least get to go there and say I was invited, but there wasn't much chance that I was going to go anywhere else after that. I did sign arena, an arena contract with the Arizona Rattlers, but I just, you know, be playing on a basketball court, the concrete, and basically having a welcome home mat laid over the top of it to play didn't sound real great for all the injuries I had either. And so I, I just left that and went into family business then. But you talked about, you know, when I started seeing symptoms and it's, it's interesting because I, I really, you know, I think there were some of the things that I know now that are maybe symptoms, like some of the mood behavior things like impulsivity and maybe some of the addiction stuff that kind of presented that I maybe didn't see initially, yeah. but I really didn't fully experience, you know, what I would call the textbook, you know, tests or slash CTE type symptoms until around, you know, 2021. And that happened when my wife, unfortunately, had a real serious medical condition. It was in the ICU for 17 days. Wow. And with that, I've since learned, I've talked to a couple leading neurologists that, you know, study TBI and specifically CTE. And they said, you know, sometimes the symptoms will come on from a trigger event. So it could be a divorce, a bankruptcy, a death. And that seemed to be kind of my case. And from there, really, that was in March. And I started noticing mood and behavior stuff, a lot of anxiety, explosive anger was very short fuse, severe depression, like really dark. And I wasn't a dark person, but definitely felt that on a regular basis where, you know, I just couldn't get out of it you know, couldn't get out of my own way. You know, the angel and the devil on your shoulders and, you know, the devil had a better conversation was more convincing. I mean, it was mm -hmm. like, you know, why are you here? You're bringing your family down, you know, that kind of thing. So I was, you know, got to a pretty bad place and I had, you know, systemic failures, you know, like hormonal levels just crashed. Uh, I was having dysautonomia, which is, you know, I would have just irregular sweating. I would have shortness of breath all of a sudden. I'd have spikes in my heart rate, just all these things that are involuntary actions. I was starting to have sleep issues. I was stopped. I wasn't breathing when I was sleeping. You know, a lot of things that are pretty serious that, you know, to happen all at once just really kind of went, I went, what is going on with this? You know, this just does not make sense. None of this is me. They all seem to have one thing in common, you know, the brain, you know, because these are all things that are brain controlled functions. So, you know, I need to kind of figure out what's going on. And then I started having, you know, the cognition issues, 
and that you know short-term memory was shot couldn't identify people's faces to names you know those kinds of things so went and saw my primary told them about my history and had done some research and said you know i think this is where things are going and then at the same time i also just had a gut instinct that I needed to probably look into this some more. And so I got on Facebook and looked up the CTE and, you know, brain injury global support group that actually Chris Boyce founded. And I got in there and I, you know, posted up about what was going on with me and, you know, just did a quick blurb about myself and when symptoms started showing. And I got like 80 responses right out the gate. Just people, I get this, you know, I have all these things too. This is exactly how it happened for me. And I've learned that really my age and my symptoms presenting is pretty much the textbook. If you were to go through and look at when this kind of takes shape, it, it usually is, can be up to a couple of decades away from when you actually had the injuries. As the accumulation of these toxins and the towel get in there, that's really when it starts to present itself. So as soon as I got in that group, I felt right at home and knew, you know, okay, this explains it. You know, because I was tackling each of these symptoms kind of with different specialists with doctors, and they were just operating within their world of, of being a specialist. But this finally put all these pieces together. You know, mm -hmm. I had ringing in my ears, but I had perfect hearing. Well, that turns out to be brain inflammation, you know, that kind of thing. And you go, okay, now I can assemble the pieces and I have the full picture. So, also, you know, by grace of God, Literally in the first day, one of the members told me about a clinical trial for football players at university, and it was using a new, it's, it's been around a while, but this was kind of experimental on suspected CTE and TBI. It's called photobiomodulation. And what that is, is the use of red and near infrared light, which is shined through inter, intracranial to your brain. And what it does is it stimulates the mitochondria. It helps with oxygen flow. And they found that they were getting some really good results with this on some early testing and wanted to do a larger study. So I was part of the 50 guys that were involved in that. I, got, I con reached out to them right away and said, hey, I want to be a part of this. Get me in somehow, some way. I can't live like this. And in July, I was uh, took my first flight out to Utah and started that process. Awesome. Now, when you're going through this, was there hope because you now found out what you're up against and you're going to do all these different things to try to improve it? Or did you also hit a depression? I really hit a wall when I saw my scans and I saw the damage and I had to be like, okay, I did really screw up my brain. So how yeah. did, how did you take that? You seem like a very positive person and, and, and took it in a positive way. Yeah. I mean, I think I blame that. I attribute that to my sports background. You know, you deal with adversity and as long as you have the information, you assess it, you figure out how to win, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that's carried with me. So I actually felt a sense of peace when I went in the group and found that I identified with people. And I think that's one thing that people would be surprised about, but I would say, don't battle this alone. Mm -hmm. You know, the guys and, and women that struggle with this are people that isolate from their family with the mood and behavioral stuff. And they go kind of, they withdraw and then they try to wrestle with this demon in their own head and it gets sideways fast, like really fast. So, you know, I, I mentioned that March to July, by July, I was at my worst. That's not very much time. In fact, you won't even be able to see a neurologist in that timeline. 
Right. So, you know, I tell people don't try to figure out what it is. Don't try to get a diagnosis because even if mm-hmm. it's, it is CTE, that's, that's just something that they write on paper. That's not going to change what you have to deal with. So and on it right now. And that was really what my focus was, is what can I do that's going to slow or stop this? You know, give me time for them that, you know, science to catch up and figure it out. Mm-hmm. So that's awesome. And you know what? And that's exactly one with the support group. I was really surprised. I, I don't reach out to other people. Usually I didn't want to, like in my mind, I was like, okay, I've done all these things. I'm not even going to think about CTE because I, you know, that's thinking about in the wrong direction. I just want to think about positive stuff and put it behind me. But mm-hmm. when I, when I did do that post and when you encouraged me to share my video that I did, man, it was, it was awesome. It felt so good to have all these people saying, Hey, we understand. And you know, yeah, you can't forgive yourself and all these different messages. And I was like, and when I realized like, okay, and I could help other people. Cause I think that's one of the big things that yes. we want to do is like, we know how much this sucks. We know what it does to our families. We know, all this, we do not want it for, you know, anyone else. So if mm-hmm. we could help another person, you know, and that alone is a, a great reason to be part of a support group, whatever, whatever you're dealing with, I believe. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a pretty raw group, as you've seen, we really open ourselves up, but mm-hmm. you know, that is key with this. I mean, there's, you, you have to share those places. So people don't think everything's great and everything's fine it's a lot of peaks and valleys. You know, you have days where it's great and you have days where you can't get out of bed. Mm-hmm. You know, there's days where my head is just pounding, you know, where I, I can't even almost see straight, right. but you know, I, I just think, you know, I've got to work through it. What did I do different? Stay with my routines, stay with my supplements, stay with my treatments. And I've gotten to a place where, you know, I've plateaued and I'm, I'm, not where I was. You have to kind of let that go, but I'm in a pretty good spot and I'm thankful. I mean, I can have quality time with my family. You know, I I can do well with a career and and maintain a job, which is hard for many people with this injury and this condition, you know, and I, and I think I got a pretty good life still. And I'm not thinking about (laughs) when the end game is, you know, it's, you know, my, my thought is, you know, everything's incurable at some point, you know, there's been some cancers that were incurable and then, Hey, somebody found a cure, you know, I mean, polio, all kinds of stuff have had this same specter over them in the past. Mm. And, you know, there's a lot of great people working on this very intelligent people. So we just have to trust that give ourselves time and try to do the best we can and hope that, that they come up with something. So, yeah, no, I I think that's a, I think that's a wonderful way to look at it. Definitely how I try to, to look at it. Yeah. Now, what what are some of the things that helped you? And I know everyone's different. You know, I tried certain things that worked well for me. Uh, my wife tried something that didn't work for her. I know it's, you know, it's kind of a hit and miss sometimes. You don't know what to what will work, but what are what are some of the things that you tried and that seemed to help the most? Well, I'll I'll get back to the clinical trial that I did then because I think that's that's something that I think is going to be needs to be shared more and has a lot of promise. You know, being one of the 49 that were involved in that, we went into Utah, did our baseline testing. So that was great. We did an fMRI. We did cognitive testing. We did physical testing. I flew in the day before and it was my work. It was by far my worst day to that point. So I went in and did the physical testing. They had me get up from a chair. And I couldn't get out of a chair without using my hands. I actually fell back and the girls caught me. 
right. you know, which they were really surprised. I don't think they'd had anybody do that before. You know, I, mm-hmm. I couldn't do the one leg drunk test. You know, I was falling over, couldn't close my eyes and keep my balance. You know, that was just the physical side, the cognitive test. I was supposed to only be there for two hours to do all the testing, two to three hours. And I almost missed my MRI. I went in at 11 and my MRI was at seven and I only had 15 minutes to spare. So it took me all day because I was stubborn, you know, and they told me you, if you just are too mentally gassed, you can stop at any time. But I wanted to do the best I could and finish it out. So I did all these tests, but you know, I like the cognitive tests. You had to like, remember a list of like eight words and then recite back as many as you could. I was doing like two, maybe, maybe even one, one list. I don't even remember. And I didn't remember any of them. So it was, it was pretty intense. Went and did the scans and then they gave me the device to use, which is a, it's an intracranial device with a a intranasal piece that clips in and it basically shines light on the brain and was directed to use that once a day for 20 minutes for every other. And then they checked in on me kind of weekly to see how things were going. When I first got it, it kind of looked like Christmas lights, you know, it's the LEDs. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. This can't be Mm -hmm. doing what they're saying. It's doing. But about a week and a half, two weeks in, I started definitely noticing a difference. My mood was better. I mean, I was like singing in the shower. You know, my wife's like, hey, what's going on? Who's this guy? You know, and just was noticing cognition was better. Energy level was better. My issues with like dropping things and balance and stuff around the house were better. And I was kind of surprised. You know, I was like, wow, this is, this is very early for this four weeks in, I felt probably about 50% better. I was having no explosive anger. I was having none of the depression or anger issues that I'd had. And, you know, going from that, we went, you know, eight weeks. I was like ready for like game time. Like I went in and did the testing and like I was doing karaoke's and backpedaling for them and you know, just goofing off, just showing them that everything was dialed in, you know, and stand on one leg way past when they wanted me to. And then I did the cognition test and smoked that, you know, and the reaction times. And it's interesting because they just put out the results of the 49 of us and all of us had uh, significant, what they call the science and data, significantly improved data for each of us I think of 46 of us for cognition, reaction time, and physical responses. So in addition to the mood and behavior scores, we're also great. So that's been the number one thing that I I try to get people and encourage people to look into because I think it's really cutting edge. Um, A lot of people are looking at hyperbaric as well. There's some Chris in our group is, is working on that right now. He's in that process and some of the other members have gotten some really good response with that. And then natural supplements have been really great. I'm a big fan of natural supplements because natural supplements, as opposed to some of these stacks and some of these synthetics don't pass the blood brain barrier. And if you can't get past the blood brain barrier, then what's the point? I mean, you're not helping your brain at all. So Mm -hmm. that's really where I've been focused. If I could say the three that are what I think are most essential that I, that most people get the most response from, and I've seen the most publication on, I would say high dose omega-3, OQ10 and lion's mane has been another fabulous one for the brain fog and the cognition. So. That's awesome. I, I still haven't done lion's mane, but yeah, omegas, I, I'm, I'm on those for sure. I have a yeah, yeah, pretty good, pretty good regimen. I was like, okay, that seems to be helping. I will stick with it. Nice. Now, 
Can you talk a little bit about your nonprofit? Well, it's a big aspiration of mine. I'd love to make it a full-time profession if I can, but still I'm paying bills. I did get it up and started, but right now there's not really a website or content yet, but I appreciate you giving me the plug. What I've mainly been doing with it is kind of working behind the scenes. Ex-athletes, I've been talking to a lot of NFL players, ex-college players, you know, or anybody in between that reaches out. I, I have caregivers that come to me and they just, they tell me about their responses and I'm not giving medical advice. I'm just sharing my story, you know, and I just tell them, hey, this is what, you know, we have 5,000 people in our group. This is what people are saying seems to be working for them. You know, we're not pushing any pharma stuff whatsoever. We're just saying, here's natural alternatives, holistic options that you have, whether it's, you know, Atlas Ortho Chiropractic or, you know, the HBOT or, you know, photobiomodulation or the supplements. That's really what we try to help people with because there isn't a whole lot out there about how to deal with this or treat it. And in fact, many times some of the, even the top neuro doctors are contacting us sidebar and going, Hey, wh what have you been using that's working? What's reducing the inflammation for you? Cause we're really, we're the pioneers right now. There isn't a whole lot known about how to deal with this, just that it's incurable, <laughs> yeah. which is not real encouraging. So you got to get out and do your own research. I mean, I'm out on PubMed all the time and all the other, you know, frontiers and all the other scientific journals I can to try to find the most info to bring back to the group for the info share. And, you know, that's kind of why I will say this about my nonprofit. I named it for CTE by CTE because I believe that all of the big discoveries that are going to come are going to come from us. We know what we're feeling. We know how different things react in our bodies. We know what combinations are working. And, you know, the, the academic community is going to probably need five to seven years to catch up to us. So you, you don't have that kind of time to mess with this. <laughs> yeah. I saw a response that Chris had to someone's question, and he said that we are the experts, you yeah. know, and not only that, but that it is like, you know, you have to just battle the symptoms and, and, you know, I go day to day and luckily, man, I'm in a wonderful place. I rarely have things now. I, I feel wonderful. I was never as bad as so many others. Um, but it's still like every day, you know, it's just take it day by day. And I think that's something, you know, important for people to remember, like, okay, let's find these coping mechanisms. Let's find these things that help. Let's try to stay positive, reach out to others and yeah, you know, yeah. we're all in it together. Yeah, you definitely, I think you've learned this probably is you break your day down to the pieces that you can handle. It's kind of like bites of your dinner, you know, if you got to make it, you know, if you can make the whole day, great. I never try to plan my whole week. I just mm -hmm. kind of plan maybe two days out, you know, and if I can make one day, great. If it's a couple hours, okay, I deal with that. If it's 10 minutes, you know, I know I need to mentally start thinking about using my toolbox and getting in there, whether it's, you know, you know, four, seven, eight breathing exercises or reducing my stressors or going for a, you know, you know, forest bathing, going for a walk, whatever it's going to do, that's going to bring me down, pet my dog, you know, to, to help me get the, the mood and the anxiety and some of the other things dealt with. But, you know, it is, as you know, it's possible if you get in a good routine and you stay really consistent and you put your health first, you can definitely get to a place where, you'll start being very in tune with your body and you'll know when things are going sideways. You'll know, oh, I'm, I've got inflammation. I didn't drink enough water. I was in the sun too long today. I shouldn't have had ice cream at 10 o'clock at night. 
you know, and you'll start realizing that some of these things are self-inflicted, you know, that you can, you can take those out of the mix and have a pretty good day if you didn't do those things. So, yeah, yeah that's yeah. great advice. And yeah, I just encourage everyone to take a good look at themselves and not just say, oh, that's just who I am. That's just how I am. That's just how it's going to be. It's like, no, we can you know, make those choices to improve our life as much as possible. But thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. This yeah, is thank awesome. you. Thanks, thank you for your work in the group. I encourage anyone that's dealing with CTE or a brain injury to check it out. And so again, the name of it, CTE and Brain Injury Global Support. Correct. On Facebook. Exactly. It's a private group. So, you know, your information isn't out there to the public. It won't be put across your friend's feeds. You don't need a membership card. You know, if you think you have something going on with your brain, it's okay to go in there. And sometimes people come in and we help them figure out that it's something else that's actually a fixable thing that, you know, they, they walk away happy and going, wow, I've lived with this my whole life and didn't know that. So it doesn't hurt. If you, if you think something's going on, be proactive. Awesome, man. Well, again, Thank you so much. I'm sure we will be in touch on the group. Right on. Thanks for joining. Appreciate it. And hopefully we'll see some of your viewers there. Awesome. Going dark. Between my podcast, nonfiction writing and conversations with new friends, I'm often accused of oversharing. Usually the accusations are from my wife, who's usually right. Hell, even most of my short stories are just a few hundred words away from the truth. However, the sharing is worth it if someone can learn from my mistakes or relate to some of the same weaknesses and warped thoughts that I possess. Plus, making stuff up is my job. If something I admit to ever leads to trouble, then I'll say I was just pretending. Prove I wasn't. Now that we're all on the same page, I can tell you why I'm sitting in this parking lot, pounding my second tea of the morning and puffing on a vape pen. And yes, I'm fully aware that this reveal just dropped my masculinity rating at least three notches. But I also know Final Float has a strict sober policy. I didn't drive an hour just to be turned away for smelling like a dirty hippie. The first time I'd come here, I didn't know what to expect. Afraid my paranoia might kick in, I'd only had two or three hits. My editor, Anthony, the guy who first recommended floating, had warned me not to get high. He said the sensory deprivation alone could lift my writer's block that felt more like a mountain and kickstart a scary story. And although Anthony didn't say it, I'm sure he was hoping it had helped me pull my head out of my ass with Unlocking the Cage, my book on MMA athletes. It wasn't just Anthony who thought floating would be good for me. A bunch of my jiu-jitsu friends claimed it was great for recovery, exactly what my broken-down body needed. Even Irene, my therapist, said I should give it a shot, that she'd allow it to replace one of our weekly sessions. So keep all that in mind if you're the type of person who likes pointing fingers. There's no way one person's suggestion was going to convince me to do absolutely nothing for an hour with no light, sound, smell, and nearly no feeling. I had shit to do. Plus, not being able to write down story ideas drives me nuts. It's the reason I carry this pen and paper everywhere. 
therapy without a prying shrink did sound better, though, and I figured the hour by myself would be an excellent time to work on my breathing. I'd just begun practicing yoga and was struggling with the concept of staying still. Do nothing and everything begins to happen. Talk to yourself. Quiet your mind. Allow the thoughts. Let them flow. Let them flood. Drown you. Hold you under. All right, enough of these thoughts. Let's take one last rip. Hold it. Hold it. Blow out all the bad thoughts with the smoke. The ones that make sleeping impossible. Now back to the first time. I barely smoked. Walked in, signed a release, and was shown to a room where I showered off, remembering at the last second to grab the earplugs off the shelf. I wedged the pink plastic into my ear, feeling oddly reassured that no sea slugs could slide into my ear canals and birth babies in my brain. I imagined the ones from Try Not to Die at Grandma's house that multiply when cut in half and scurry inside every orifice. I looked everywhere but couldn't find any extra earplugs, a guarantee my butt would stay clenched the entire hour. That's when I knew this whole thing was a terrible idea. My brain goes to the dark side the first chance it gets. And that's with just the audio muted. Once the lights were off, I knew I'd revert to being a scared little six-year-old hiding under the sheets. I opened this small submarine-type door and a relaxing white light tricked me into stepping inside the six-by-eight tub the salt water only reaching halfway up my shin. I closed the door behind me and eased myself in super slow because I'd just pictured myself slipping, cracking my head on the wall and drowning face down, a crimson halo fanning from my skull. The water was the same temperature as my body, the Epsom salt preventing me from sinking. I recognized that the experience could have been soothing if the air wasn't so thick it was like trying to breathe through a wet towel. Without warning, the lights blinked off, and panic nearly pulled me under. I blindly reached for the button and couldn't find it, suddenly afraid of what I might feel instead. I'd been stupid to smoke, my paranoia ramping up, my heart thumping so hard it rippled the water and thudded in my head. My breathing became ragged, and I worried that someone had accidentally hit the wrong switch and turned off the air. I was inches from the edge of an anxiety attack, but I wasn't ready to quit. I focused on the sensation of buoyancy, how I couldn't remember ever floating like this, not even as a child, how effortless it seemed, my lower half not dragging me down. My breathing eased as I spread out like a starfish, amazed at how much tension I was still holding on to. My breath began to flow and my body relaxed, my mind cutting in and out of the haze. My body did nothing, lost at sea, floating, one of the first lessons we taught our kids because of the pool. The fear of Jake drowning was the reason I wrote Safety First. My mind changed the channel, but not the genre. I began thinking that maybe what I was experiencing right then was what dying was like. Nothing but our soul, the real mind behind our brain. 
It's a scary thought being left with only yourself. Why I'd seen so many people go nuts in solitary confinement. But in solitary, at least you can move. You can feel. What if all that were gone? No stomach rumbling, no itchy nose, no bumping into a wall, no TV, radio, phone, book, or person for a distraction. Nothing but yourself. If given a choice, I'd rather blink out of existence than face myself forever. But right then, both ideas bummed me out. All my life I'd been obsessed with death, fascinated by it, terrified of it, wishing it would hurry up and claim me, until now. Now I'm finally enjoying it and wanting to delay death indefinitely for me and my loved ones. The tears slipped into the water, my mind calculating how little life was left, even if we're lucky, but knowing none of us are. There could never be enough days, and death's a mean motherfucker. It doesn't give a shit if you're cute or ugly, kind or cruel, alone or loved. I got mad at myself for wasting time thinking about shit that would only depress me. I'd come here to work, to transform emotions into a story. Instead of blocking the demons, I opened their cage and told them to have at it. I unleashed my mind, and it came back with giant spiders descending from the ceiling, a lurker creeping between my legs, and the water rising while mustard gas pumped in from above. Everything a rerun. Something I'd read, seen, or written. What made it worse was I couldn't take full credit for my own scenes. How many had Anthony suggested or improved upon? He was the better writer. He went to college for it, and the reviews for Nick the Saint are higher than those for any of my books. Except Try Not to Die, which he co-authored with me. And now he was telling me unlocking could never work the way I was writing it, which meant I'd wasted over two years trying to piece it together. How could I come up with any new tales of doom and destruction when I had that shit weighing me down? My right hand balled into a fist, and no better than my son, I banged it into the bottom of the tub. Unbelievable pain shot up my arm and blasted my brain. I popped upright and bit back a scream as a splash of water burned my eyes. There was a spray bottle, a washcloth somewhere in the tub, but I went for the door, my hands frantically feeling the entire wall before smacking the handle. I found the shower, washed out my eyes, then rinsed off the four-inch-long cat scratch down my right forearm, an angry red present from the day before. I powered up my phone because I was finished. I'd been in for less than 20 minutes, but I was done for the day. I swore I'd never come back. Yet here I am. Third time's a charm. Yes, I realize I skipped the second time, but that's because I hate telling that part. I know it sounds crazy. Something even I wouldn't believe. Plus, it's time to head inside. It's such a beautiful day that I can't help feeling guilty Anthony won't ever see another one. Nine days after my first float was when I found out he had died. I'd been CC'd on an email sent from his wife. Heart attack. 36 years old and apparently healthy. 
dropped dead teaching third period. As sad as his passing was, it wouldn't have been that big of a deal for me if I hadn't pride. I don't even know why I did. Everything got fucked up the moment I found out he died the same day I'd visited this place. And I only made things worse by bringing it up to Irene. I told her I knew I didn't have anything to do with Anthony's death, but I also made the mistake of saying, maybe that sort of thing is possible. But we just don't know how to scientifically measure it yet. With all the meditation, yoga, and brain games, combined with the neurotrophics, maybe I'd tapped into that part of our brain we no longer use. Perhaps I'd opened new pathways. Irene looked at me like I was crazy. I told her I didn't say I believed that stuff. I was just saying maybe we don't know. What I did know was that blast of pain in the tub felt an awful lot like the rocket ride at the start of a DMT trip. Once Irene heard that, I couldn't backtrack. She made me return to final float. Said I had to. I needed to conquer my fear and deal with the sad truth that my friend was gone. Not to mention how unhealthy it was for me to entertain a delusion that fueled my guilt. Knowing how much I detest being mentally weak, Irene asked point-blank, if I was too scared to try again. And before I could answer, she said she'd count it as two sessions with her. Yeah, that second time I'd been scared. You probably would be too if you thought you might have accidentally killed someone. But like I said before, I'm not going to get into it. That's all behind me, and today's a good day. I know I can handle the tank. All anxiety has been alleviated. I'm no longer scared of the dark. And the unknown has a way of revealing itself to those brave enough to explore it. The waiting room is beautiful, full of comfy couches to settle in. Donnie, the surfer-looking dude at the front desk, says, What's up? Doesn't say a word about me looking high as hell. It's only ten in the morning. Some of you thinks I'm still tired. Usually... I'm terrible with names, but Donnie's the same guy who cleaned up after my second visit. I hooked him up with a fat tip, and he never questioned my story about all the blood. Donnie says, they're still readying my room. It'll be a few minutes. I say that's cool and head over to the couch, pretending I'm going to write something important on my notepad. I hate being on a phone, especially in this kind of place where everyone's trying to be all zen. But this is important. Writers are warned to never check reviews of their work, especially those by average Joes. But reviews are the lifeblood of an independent author. You should always keep an eye out for those that would do you harm. I click on the one-star reviews. Fortunately, a small group to choose from. Looks like only one of the Joes has the courage to use his real name. It is quite possible that Mr. Painter simply does not care for my work, something I totally get. There are plenty of talented authors that I'll never read because of my varied interests. I'm guessing, however, that this guy has a habit of being toxic and spreading negativity. Donnie calls me, says, Room 6 is ready. I palm my phone and try to tread quietly down the hallway, but my sandals slap with every step. 
Inside the room, I lock the door, get undressed, and stack my clothes on the bench. I'm skipping the shower because I doubt they have cameras and I want to get started. I throw in the earplugs and pick up my wallet. I'm careful not to cut myself when I reach behind my business cards and slide out the razor blade. I've carried one all my life because you never know when it might come in handy. This is the same one I used in the last session. Sort of a lucky charm. While working as a correctional officer, I got to see just what these bad boys can do. I watched one guy bleed out on his toilet. Just sat there, looking at me, his femoral artery pissing away his life. Another guy gave himself the widest smile ever, only six inches too low. The guys with no imagination always went for their wrists. But that's not my thing. To be completely honest, I do enjoy teasing the tip over those places, the vital spots where one simple slice could end it all. But that's not where I cut myself. Who are we kidding? We all knew I'd get into the details of my... On trip two, I'd only been in the tank about ten minutes when I let the blade do its little dance dragging it out so I could finalize my thoughts, crystallize Irene's face, the look that said she thought I was crazy. Part of me felt awful, the other part foolish. There are plenty of people that I wouldn't mind seeing dead, but there wasn't anyone I'd wish it on. The new peaceful me tries not to hate, and really, what's the rush when we're all headed to the same place? However, I'm human, and I needed to know what I was capable of, what we as a species are capable of, and Irene wrote things down that could incriminate me, or at least set me up for some nasty blackmail. So yeah, Irene seemed like a decent person who probably didn't deserve it, but I'd already come so far, had the tip of the razor pressed against my ribs, an inch below the water's surface. I started my mantra. She wasn't a friend. She wasn't a person. She was an enemy that could destroy me and my family. At the height of my fury, I nicked my skin, but couldn't control my reaction, the blade scraping bone when I jumped. With the lights on, the tub looked like a living lava lamp, my blood spreading throughout the solution. Crazy Glue did the trick, and I got away with no stitches. Irene didn't fare quite as well, but like I said, she was the one who forced me to go. My therapy with her was court-ordered, so it was never like I had a choice. But with Mr. Painter here, there was an ethical dilemma. I don't even know the man. That's why I had to be extra sure and read some more reviews. It's what I figured. Painter's your typical troll, loathing everything that displeases him. It's crazy how much you can find out about someone in just a couple of clicks. I'm pretty sure I only need his name and face, but I don't want to be irresponsible. And I'll need all his info when I check in on him later today to see if he still has a heartbeat. <laughs> 